Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. The Trump administration has been accused, I heard over the weekend, of being vindictive and mean-spirited. And that seems horribly unfair. I think it was a horrible day for democracy. This attack on McCabe really reminds me of something from a movie. It seems sort of tragic and unfair. On the surface, though, it does look vindictive. Should we not take it that way? It feels vindictive just because it was the timing of it. Which leads one to believe that this is authoritarian behavior or the making of one. <laughs> Welcome to the Buck Section Show, everybody. Oh, man, media was in a meltdown over the weekend about that, weren't they? They're just all so upset about McCabe getting fired. There's so much to say here, folks. We're going to have some fun with this one. We're going to really air this one out, you know, so you can uh, take a moment, take a deep breath, stretch out, because we're going to lean into this. Oh, my. Here, let, let's start with this. Trump didn't fire McCabe. Does, does that seem to matter to anybody here? Do, do, do any of these folks who are saying that, you know, oh, my gosh, our institutions are all going to just collapse? The president of the United States did not fire McCabe. In fact, the president of the United States had... No direct involvement whatsoever in the firing of McCabe. McCabe got fired because of an inspector general report from within the FBI. Now, that's very significant, folks. That really matters. uh, Because I can tell you this. A federal bureaucracy is going to protect its own until it can't. You know, until they decide you have to be voted off the island, they're usually going to treat you like one of their own and they're going to protect you at the senior levels. Oh, no, no, don't get me wrong. Let's not get this twisted. If you are some average Joe Schmo at one of these places, they may they may decide to uh, feed your career into the wood chipper, so to speak. They may decide that you're you're done uh, because it will send a message to the rest. But at the McCabe level. Been there for decades, close with everybody, close with Comey. This was Comey's deputy. This was Comey's right hand man, Mr. Six Foot Nine Sanctimony himself, James Comey. He of tweeting out placid lake scenes while writing anti Trump screeds fame. Uh, this is what we see here that the inspector general was the one that decided that McCabe has to be fired. Now, I don't want to go too far down the road of what McCabe did was so terrible. He leaked this inform he leaked information and lied about it. That's all we know right now. I'm thinking that if we were to see if we were to see what was contained in the report in total, we would th- we would then understand how it is the FBI would get rid of one of its own in this way. But, oh, my gosh, the media were in a tizzy over the weekend based on this. 
He got fired late Friday night. You'll, you'll recall, I told you here on the show, I thought he was going to get fired. We were on firing watch. I even said on Outnumbered on Friday, I thought he was going to get fired. And he did. So, you know, always bet on Buck. That's what I like to say. Always bet on Buck. But, you know, doesn't really change all that much here until we get more information. Now, do I think that this was the right thing? Sure, it makes sense to me. Oh, oh, one more thing. Before we bust out the world's smallest violin for Andy McCabe here, let's understand a few things. He's somebody who, no doubt, jammed up, which is the law enforcement term of art for blanking somebody over, jammed up uh, tons of people for lying to probably him as an FBI agent in his day, as well as lots of other FBI folks. And for just that, that's really one of the one of the favorite charges of the federal government is lying to the federal government. They love to get you on that one. I'm not even saying lying under oath in a court proceeding. I'm just saying lying to a federal agent. Love that one. And it's actually something I think should be revisited in the context of if you didn't actually do anything wrong, but lied about something unimportant. Should you really should you get the Flynn treatment? Oh, yeah, that's right. Flynn had to sell his house to pay his legal bills. General Flynn, he served decades in the military. Is anyone anyone crying for him in the media? No, no. They, they think that's totally fair. They are exposing themselves. We are seeing how deep the deep state really goes. I would note that uh, some polls came out over the weekend. I think actually CNN might even publish one of them about how most people believe there is a deep state. So, so we can have academics write snide pieces about how the deep state in Turkey is a very specific. Yeah, we got an American deep state here, folks. And we already know who some of the capos of this crime family are. Comey, Brennan. Oh, we'll get to Brennan in a second. Don't think he's going to escape this one. McCabe. Comey, Brennan, McCabe, I, Sally Yates. We're just getting started. There's a whole squad of folks that are clear. Clapper. Oh, gosh. Be here all day. You know, Strzok. I mean, you can get some of the lower level ones, too. Bruce Orr. There was a clear anti-Trump effort at the top level of DOJ. It's being more exposed with all these revelations. But I just, on the playing the smallest violin for McCabe ever, understand he sent people to prison or lying to him many times. He's not getting sent to prison. Other people lie and lose their freedom. He's just getting his pension delayed, which brings me to the, oh, pull over the ambulance. Retiring at 50? Full pension and benefits? That's a good deal. That is a good deal. He's not losing his entire pension, everyone. That's not true. He might have to wait now. He might not qualify under the current civil service rules until he's, I don't know, uh, 62 or 60. You know, like normal person retirement age. (laughs) He might have to do that. Oh, no. But you're already seeing a lot of Democrats come out and say, that they are willing to hire him. That's how clearly political this is, right from the beginning. That's how obvious it is that this is just my team, their team. McCabe is anti-Trump, therefore he is embraced by the left. So the Democrats, what do I tell you time and again here on the show? The left takes care of its own. The Democrats make sure that anyone who does bad deeds for them has good things come of it that sends a very important message right you some of you are game of thrones fans i'm sure you know lannisters always pay their debts 
The left always takes care of its own. You get book deals, you get media contracts, you get, uh, you know, chancellorships at universities, board seats on companies. James Comey, who is going to write the most sanctimonious giant pile of Tyrannosaurus poo, I, I think, imaginable, is now the number one selling author on Amazon in pre-sales. Why? Because everyone assumes that he's going to, you know, slam Trump. It's going to be more of what we already know. But get get really excited for, you know, the, the early Comey years where he's a hall monitor. It's like, do you have a pass? Detention for you. Sanctimonious people don't change. They, if they're if they're that annoying now, trust me, they're annoying in high school too. And I think Comey is he a, is he a New Yorker? I forget. Is he? For, I forget where he's from. Is he New York or Philly? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm putting him on your doorstep, Quinn. He's a Philly producer. Mike is looking at me. All AKA Quinn. He's a Philly guy. If I ever saw one, I, I'm thinking there's some Philly with Comey, and I'm just trying to make him not a New York guy. So I'm gonna feel bad about it. Anyway, so you get this. You get this uh, sense that something terrible has happened because McCabe's been fired. Big deal. He's going to get, speaking of big deal, going to get a big book deal. And what? Oh, he's Comey. He's a Catholic schoolboy from New York like me. I thought so. Oh, dude. It was was born in Yonkers. Some of the worst. Some of the best, but some of the worst are from my same, my same general, you know, pumpkin patch, so to speak. Right. We're, we're the same. Me and Comey and uh, you know you know who else? Fitzgerald, the special prosecutor in the Valerie Plame case, whatever. He not only went to my high school, went to my college. I think he's he's all so he's also a New York Catholic schoolboy, and he's a super hall monitor and a, and a headhunter at the DOJ. Uh, who else falls in that? But we get some of the best too. Scalia actually went to my rival high school here in New York City, Xavier. We all like to say he didn't get into Regis, but then people boo us, so we try not to say that too much publicly. Um, but may you rest in peace, one of the great minds, one of the great legal minds of, uh, of all time. Uh, so, Comey, McCabe, we've seen so much of it exposed, but it gets worse. It gets worse. It's not just uh, at the DOJ and the FBI where there were clear senior officials, appointees of the Obama administration, no less. President Obama, in some cases, is very close to these individuals who are obviously anti-Trump and took actions against the Trump campaign. There are some other folks, too, who have exposed themselves on social media recently. We will get into that, including a former director of my own agency. And I'm throwing my, my, own, my pedigree, so to speak, getting thrown on the bus. We got Catholic school guys from New York City like Comey being sanctimonious. Then we got Brennan, former CIA director, who went on a... Do we say tirade or tirade? Do we go both? I feel like people go both a tirade, right? I say tirade. Some people say tirade, I think. Or maybe it's a charade. I don't know. <laughs> charade, charade, tomato, tomato. What did Brennan say and what does it tell us about this whole Russia collusion fiasco? And oh, by the way, Vladimir Putin won, re- won re-election. We got that. We got a lot more. We're going to talk about China's theft of intellectual property from the U.S. Here's what. China. Here's, there you go. Thank you. Perfectly timed drop. We got China talking about that. We're also going to get into some discussion of trade and how all this trade war tariffs were. You know, speaking of hall monitors, some of my conservative buddies on this are throwing a fit. Uh, It doesn't add up, folks. You look at the numbers. It's not that big a deal no matter how you slice it. It's literally not that big a deal. 
aluminum, steel. I'll give you the details and the numbers. When somebody says, she's going to start a trade war, you'd be like, yeah, this is a tempest in a teapot. It's not what people are pretending it is. Uh, We'll also talk a bit about this Cambridge Analytica situation. Um, I can't give you too much of a preview on that because I'm going to run in the next break, but just all of a sudden now, Facebook and data are coming under all this scrutiny when, well, let's just say that this is this is very, very much a, a partisan narrative that is emerging about all this. Keep in mind that it wasn't long ago that the Obama administration was all about mining everything they could online. Obama's digital team was the best in the business. They're so amazing, though, the digital whiz kids that he's got and all that stuff. Now it's like, oh, my gosh. They're looking at social media profile information and making political determinations about it? Good heavens. Yeah. Of course they are. <laughs> is this, this, is a surpri- this should be a surprise to no one. But because Trump did it, you know, it must be bad. That's the idea. Because Trump's team did it, now it's evil. Now all of a sudden, the incredible surveillance machine that is the internet is scary. Wasn't scary for eight years of Obama, who, by the way, actually did spy on journalists and do all kinds of super shady bad stuff. But, you know, it wasn't a problem then. Now it's a problem. It's almost like journalists were all at sleepaway camp for eight years, and now they've now they've come back and they actually want to do their jobs. In fact, that's exactly what it's like. Um, all right, we're going to hit a quick break. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. We have much more show. Stay with me. You don't get to decide when to tell the truth and when not to. I'm going to withhold judgment until Horowitz's report comes out because we, I don't Horowitz, know precisely we say what the, he found. It, we should just say Horowitz is the inspector general. Let's wait and see what he found. Let's wait and see what that lack of candor was. And then we can judge the fact pattern and the proportionality of the penalty of, of his losing his pension. We can judge all that once we understand exactly what he's alleged to have done. But But make no mistake. The FBI is who recommended that he be fired. It wasn't crazy House Republicans, and it wasn't the Trump administration. It was his own fellow bureau agents. The facts with regard to McCabe are very important. They basically have said that McCabe leaked classified documents. That's illegal. But then he also lied about leaking classified documents. And so, you know, the FBI are sticklers on this, and they don't tolerate lying from their agents. And so if all of that's true, I see no way that he could continue in his office and that punishment is appropriate. Does anyone have an argument against what was said there by Trey Gowdy and then Rand Paul? You know, I, I think those are two of the... Uh, two of the Republicans that you can count on to... To call BS when they see it either way. You know, I think that Rand Paul's an honest and ethical guy. I don't think he's always right, but I think he's honest and ethical. I don't think that he is too clouded with partisanship to see things for what they are. Um, and I feel the same way about Trey Gowdy, although, I don't know, I think because Gowdy's not running anymore, I start to feel like he's he's lost his edge. Or maybe I'm just seeing it more. It seems to me like he's a little too like, well, you know, I'd like the New York Times to write nice things about me sometimes. Very dangerous for Republicans. They write nice things about you for a day, and then they trash you, and your own people think you're a sellout. You don't want to go down that path. But I mentioned before we went into the break that it's not just DOJ. It's not just McCabe and Comey and all these other senior FBI folks who are a problem. 
There's a lot more when you look at this, including John Brennan, close confidant of President Obama's and the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Keep in mind, folks, that being the director of the CIA, it's not like rising to be the CEO of a company where like the best person gets the job or somebody with a proven track record. A lot of the time, these jobs, I'm just going to say it, go to somebody who the president likes and wants that person in the role. Was Leon Panetta some intel genius? No. Obama liked him. He had some background. They put him in these places, right? I mean, any number. And there have been some really... Panetta was actually okay as directors go, I'm, from what I'm told, from people who were there and know. Uh, there have been some really crap, lousy CIA directors over the years. Uh, but Brennan was Obama's agency director, and he was known to be very chummy with the press and reputed to uh, want to get certain narratives out there into the media. And he tweeted out in response to the McCabe firing the following. This is a quote from the former CIA director in the Obama administration. By the way, the same CIA director who was very much pushing the Russia collusion narrative with the Trump campaign in full swing during the election. You know, Brennan was the one who was waving the flags and screaming about, oh, look at all this Russia. You know, he was the one, right? Or one of a few. Now we find out what he thinks of Trump. And, oh, gosh, you're not going to be surprised by this at all, are you, folks? Quote, when the full, this is in response to President Trump directly on Twitter. This is blue check warfare, blue check to blue check. When the full extent of your venality, moral turpitude, and political corruption becomes known, you will take your rightful place as a disgraced demagogue in the dustbin of history... You may scapegoat Andy McCabe, but you will not destroy America. America will triumph over you. I ask you, my friends, in all honesty, does that not seem like a a slightly unhinged thing for a former CIA director to write about the current commander in chief? You will not destroy America. America will triumph over you. So we only have a few options here. Either the former CIA director and Obama's buddy is losing it or he thinks that trump is a clear and present danger to the united states and if that were the case what would the former cia director have been willing to do against trump while still director he's holding the line for america buck sexton is back laugh i don't know i mean at this point it, it, it It does feel as if, you know, it's one, you talk to one set of people and they think the wheels are coming off this administration and you talk to another set and it's exactly the presidency that they wanted. So, but the fact of the matter is, I don't know if our institutions can handle what Trump is doing. We can't seem to see if our institutions are going to survive the emotional spasms of Twitter. It's a great line. What does that say about our institutions, by the way? If, if Trump's Twitter account can bring them tumbling down they're not very durable are they now that's also crazy because trump's twitter is not going to bring any of them tumbling down but just when, when you look at what is being said some of the narratives that have gained traction on the left you know the, these anti-trump stories they're almost like bedtime stories now the democrats tell each other so they can sleep at night they're just nonsensical they don't add up they're self-contradictory 
you get Chuck Todd there saying, you know, I just don't know if our institutions can just, I don't know if they can survive. Well, if an institution like the FBI is going to survive, the inspector general has to be able to look for misconduct and when it finds it has to be able to punish it, right? So th- this is this is not the least bit surprising from that respect. So I just look at this and I say to myself, what are they even talking about with this? It was an institution operating exactly as it should that fired Andrew McCabe from his job at the FBI. I would note that what Rand Paul said, I'm not sure if that has been verified or not yet. I think that he was my impression from what I've read. And I'm admitting that I haven't read the IG report. Nobody is talking about this has read the IG report yet. Um. But we don't know if it was classified information or not that he, if it was classified information, then he has to be fired. And also then there's the issue of why, why doesn't he have criminal charges? But if we're just talking about even uh, internal information given to the press that he then lied about, that, it, it, why would he not get fired for that? It just doesn't, it, again, it doesn't add up. It does not make sense. But they are uh, completely as you know, in the tank and devoted to doing everything they can to make the president look bad, up to and including embarrassing themselves. They will be embarrassed. They will be embarrassed if and when we ever find out exactly what the allegations were in that inspector general report. Uh, That much I can tell you. Because they just see, oh, Someone was fired who was working against Trump. It must be Trump's fault. That's not true. That's not the way that this works. All right, we got a bunch of calls, so let's uh, take some of them before we move. I want to get into some calls before we switch topics. Uh, We'll start with Dean in Boston. What's up, Dean? Hey, Buck, how you doing? Good. I'm probably being tracked by uh, Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, so I'll be quick. So this is funny. I'm listening to um, our own Seth Moulton from Massachusetts, who says that he would hire this guy for three days so he can reach his pension. Right. And I started thinking, who retires at 49 with a full pension? And why would someone who has that high a level job decide all of the sudden, you know what, I need to put in for my retirement and I need to get out. And this is the earliest date that I can get out. I don't know what the that he just put that in and said, I got to get out of here. Well, it might have been his plan all along, because I'm thinking about if you could get your full retirement at 50. Right. Wouldn't you wouldn't you take it? Uh, I don't know if this was the plan all along. He obviously went early uh, because he was going to run out. You know, he he was trying to run out the clock and and had come under a lot of scrutiny. the, The thing is, people ask me, like, oh, Buck, you know, I mean, I was in the CIA. I obviously wasn't a career officer who spent 20 years there because then I would have had to start when I was like five. So uh, I don't I don't know how the vesting process works and all that. Uh, what I can tell you uh, is that, one, it is very hard to get fired from these places. You have to do something usually illegal. That's what I always tell everybody. If you show up on time, if you are where you are supposed to be for your job in the federal government, when you're supposed to be there and you don't actively break the law, it's still and but you refuse to do any work of any kind. It still takes a long time to fire you. So that's the way the civil service procedures work. And I know that for some of these gigs, look, some people have great deals. I could sit here and talk to you about like uh, firemen's pensions in uh, California, for example, in some of the major cities in California. 
they are lucrative. <laughs> they ever, that's the deal. That's what they sign up for, but they've got great deals. I, the FBI, I think, has a pretty good deal. I would note that I've read this today, and we haven't checked on this, so Mike, you got to fact check me on this one, Producer Mike, if I'm, if I'm off. I read today that Anthony Weiner, who is currently serving, I believe, a federal prison sentence, he's in prison now, right? Anthony Weiner, who is a convicted sex offender, will get a million, what is the equivalent of a million dollars worth of benefits for his pension as a former member of Congress, despite being a convicted uh, felon sex offender. So there are some places where you get great, it's a great gig, Dean, if you can get it in terms of the pension. Yeah. Worth $1.2 million his pension. Worth, worth $1.2 million. Uh, Did we lose Dean, or is, is Dean just in awe of all the knowledge bombs I'm dropping? Don't Dean, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Oh, there you go. Sorry. Oh, now, now I've done it. So what does it say What does it say to the American public that a House of Representatives member who I, we're thinking in mass has kind of a hidden agenda to try and get his name out for the, the presidency sometime in the near future. But what does it say that they step up after the Federal Bureau of Investigation kind of internal affairs department and an inspector general, a completely separate agency, decides that this person should be terminated and he then steps up and says, you know what, I'll hire him for three days so he can get his pension. Right, exactly. What, what, what are we supposed to think of our trusted institutions then? I mean, this is, the, this is like the equivalent of saying, well, the FBI's processes don't matter anymore. What matters is getting Trump. And what matters is supporting people who tried to get Trump. That's what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Dean, Shields High, man. Thank you very much for the call. Dean is an astute fellow. Uh, Charlie in Ocean City, Maryland. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Buck. I'm glad you got my call, and Shields High, brother. Shields High to you, sir. Hey, I was just listening uh, earlier today on some talk shows, and they pointed out uh, there's a report out that McCabe is actually uh, net worth about 11 mil. And I'm trying to think, I was just a simple bricklayer, if he made 100000 a year, in 20 years, that's only 2 mil. How do you get 11? Well, his wife is a doctor, right? Uh-huh. So, I mean, she might be making I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what doctors in Virginia. She was a primary care physician, I believe. She could probably make a half million dollars a year. Yeah. So, I mean, the man, okay, his pension is what? 56,000 a year. Look, if, if you're asking me how they can have a net worth of, of 11 million, Charlie, the answer is I I don't know. Um, but it, it it's worth looking into. But you know they could have yeah. family. You know she could have family money. There's a lot of ways that people can have money that don't necessarily. You know, I, I, but I, I see this with uh, who is the guy, um, Senator from uh, Arizona, who is the majority Harry Reid. How is it that Harry, Harry Reid was a could afford living in a in an apartment in the Ritz Carlton, which is like the most expensive place in all of D.C.? That was where he lived when he was in D.C. Where did Harry well, Reid get that kind of cash? I don't. No one. Look at our friend Nancy. I mean, she. Well, she's she married a rich guy. Hundred million. Yeah. Yeah. She's well, she, she married a rich. That, that's the old fashioned way. You know, yeah, marry yeah. somebody with a lot of money. That's a good way to do it. Charlie Shields, I'm it. Thank you for calling in. I'll, I'll look a little more into uh, whether or not McCabe. You know, but that's there's always the option of you know, family money, uh, maybe, maybe uh, Dr. McCabe writes novels under a pen name and it's done very well. You know, there's all kinds of ways that people make money that you wouldn't know about, but it's worth looking worth looking into. I, I would say this. I'm, I'm guessing FBI has financial disclosures, and so they probably 
know a whole lot about how McCabe uh, did or did not make money. Um, so I'm not seeing that as a big issue, but I'll keep an eye on it. I'll make that promise to you. I, I want to switch gears because Cambridge Analytica is getting a lot of attention. Facebook lost billions of dollars in value today. It was down, uh, what, 5 6 7%, something like that in trading. I don't pay that close attention to the markets. But Facebook had a very bad day. Everyone's freaking out about this thing. And to me, well, a few things. One is that they're freaking out because it involves Trump. So that always automatically, when Trump derangement syndrome kicks in, everything is, oh, my gosh. Uh, but they're acting like it's a huge surprise that people will use the data they can glean from social media and uh, use that for the purposes of constructing political messaging and memes and campaigns and everything else. Social media makes the, the reason these places are, are so lucrative and the reason they offer you a service for free is to aggregate your data to then capitalize off of that data. That, that is what social media does. That is how Facebook is essentially a giant printing press of money. They take the information about you. They take your activities and then they tailor advertising to you. And Facebook, by the way, has clamped down hard on just, you know, the way that they are doing things these days. And it's their way or the highway. As I've been saying for a long time, we are in these progressive left wing mega platforms. And there's been no choice for a lot of folks. And people now are, well, I'm going to I'm going to go on a whole rant here about something else. Cambridge Analytica involved with the Trump campaign. People are freaking out. Why? I'll answer the question after the break. Cambridge Analytica uh, was birthed out of a company called SEL Group, which is a military contractor based in London. It, uh, it, this, this data uh, was used to create uh, profiling algorithms that would allow us to explore mental vulnerabilities of people um, and then uh, map out ways to uh, inject information into different, Im- different streams or channels of, of content online so that people started to see things all over the place that that may or may not have been true. This is a company that, that really uh, took fake news to, to the next level by powering it with algorithms. So that's Christopher Wiley, who helped found the data firm Cambridge Analytica. That's getting so much news media attention right now. And people are talking about how it has, well, he said that it has an arsenal of weapons in a culture war. As I understand it, here's what's happened. You have uh, different companies that are always trying to find ways to aggregate the stuff that we're all doing online all the time. These social media platforms, my friends, are like intel collectors on you. Every click, every look, every like, all the stuff we're doing all the time. We just think it goes into some you know, vast cloud and who cares. And sure, that's somewhat true. Although I've been saying for a while, just wait until... One of these social media companies decides to release the, you know, private uh, chat that some guy had on Facebook with his mistress 20 years ago when he's running for president, because that's going to happen. Guaranteed, that's going to happen. Just a question of when. And so people say, oh, well, you know, they're a private company. They can do whatever they want. What are you going to do? They violated their terms of service. They can say they changed their terms of service. They're a private company. 
Unless Congress passes laws to protect people from the exploitation of their private information on these social on these third party platforms, then that's the way that's the way it's going to be. But so here's what happened with Cambridge Analytica. They are a, a group that's looking at all this different social media data and they're trying to find ways to create the most. Well, to understand the psyche of the masses, really. And then they exploit that information. They exploit uh, exploit that information advantage for the purposes of politics. In this case, it seems that they may have hired a company, the Cambridge Analytica, and their ties to the Mercers and Bannon. And this is all, oh, my gosh, you know, they're keep on, you know, the the. Obama team back in 2012 and uh, 2008, they were doing stuff that people thought, oh, my gosh, you know, they're look at how great their digital team is looking at all this Facebook information and data. And everyone's crunching all these numbers all the time. The problem that, well, there's a few things going on here with Cambridge Analytica. One of them is they may have hired uh, another company to be kind of a front that would have you take a personality quiz. And then you answer all these questions about yourself and I think it might have also given you might have also given that app uh, access to your data, your friend list, your likes, all that stuff. And this is standard. A lot of these apps say, you know, can I have access to and it lists all the different things. This is the brave new world we live in now. And if you say yes, then guess what? That means that that service has access to sure enough, all that stuff, which is why a lot of these things that we think are free are free for us, but they do come at a cost. And the cost is your information and your privacy. And that information is now out there. And if you think it's protected, just start reading about some of the major cyber breaches that have happened, and inc- including places like the government and, and others that their whole reason for existing is to prevent cyber breaches, right? They're, they're doing a lot of work, a lot of effort to try and make sure that does not happen. And they get breached. So don't think that, oh, well, Facebook has it. It must be safe. But they, you, you heard that guy, Wiley, when we started this segment here, saying that they're like weaponizing people's ideas, exploiting psychological vulnerabilities. Another way of saying it is, yeah, they're figuring out what's on people's minds, what's popular. And then they're constructing narratives and stories. And maybe that includes fake news. Maybe it doesn't. Probably does. That'll get the most clicks and shares and everything else. By the way, every media entity I know is doing this in one way or another. This is the game now, folks. This is what is going on. It's only being treated as so nefarious now because it involves Trump and some of Trump or Trump's associates, people like Bannon and Mercer, who was bankrolling Trump. She's the daughter of the billionaire Robert Mercer. And this is going on in all kinds of ways. I have seen this coming for a while. I've been trying to sound the alarm as much as possible that the Internet, and particularly with the advent of the social media platforms and their dominance in our discourse. I mean, I know people now who are like, well, you know, I'm just going to build my business. I'm just going to sell directly over Facebook. And I'm like, OK, you can do that for a while. But guess what happens when Facebook realizes that your company is deriving a vast majority of its revenue from them? Do you, do you think that they can know that and then decide that they're going to use the leverage they have over you to demand even higher rates and more, you know, we are giving so much power to these things. Facebook is the biggest example, but, you know, Twitter, um, Instagram, Snapchat, which I've always thought was kind of garbage. Um, But these are collecting information on millions and millions of people. And they're using that. 
Make no mistake about it. They are using the information they get from your day-to-day activities. Every like, every click, every digital thought that you leave online. And that may not be used against you personally, but it will be used by these companies to get an information advantage. And in the massive digital propaganda wars that are going on right now, social media platforms are the front line. I'll have more on Cambridge Analytica for you tomorrow. Promise. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. This neighborhood is still um, being locked down right now for safety. Again, we're doing this in overabundance of caution so that we can keep this neighborhood safe while we process the scene. What I can tell you is based on the preliminary review that we have done at this time, we have seen similarities in the device that exploded here last night and the other three devices that have exploded in Austin starting on March 2nd. Again, this is preliminary information, but we have seen similarities. The big difference in this device, again, is we believe that a tripwire was used in this device. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, tough news out of Austin, Texas, where you have uh, the, a fourth... A fourth bomb exploding this time, as you heard from the Austin police chief there, as a result of a, a tripwire, so a more sophisticated device. And now the narrative from law enforcement down in Austin, what we're hearing, it, it has shifted away from what was initially, it seemed like, uh, some perhaps even uh, hate crime-based attacks See, now they just have a, a madman, a serial bomber on the loose, and they have very little to work with from what we've been told so far. You've got four bombings. Uh, there have been fatalities. There have also been some people wounded as a result of it. And uh, they're looking for help right now uh, down in Austin. They're looking for someone to come forward from the public because the analysis of an actual bomb Uh, after it's gone off, is a painstaking process. It's not something that happens very quickly. You need to find the pieces of it. The shrapnel has to be analyzed. You're looking for uh, any signature that you can find on any of this, looking for DNA, looking for the uh, components used in the devices. Can you reverse engineer the device in such a way it might give you clues about how someone put it together and where they got that information? Maybe if you might get lucky and have some unique component to it that is traceable, right? That is um, that is what, I believe that's actually how the uh, Oklahoma City bombing of the, uh, uh, of the federal building there by Timothy McVeigh, I think they found a VIN number among the, uh, in the debris. And that was the big break in that case. You see, sometimes when you're looking for a bomber, they make it much easier. I remember during the Faisal Shahzad case in 2010, the would-be Times Square bomber, he left the car that he tried to blow up, make into a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. He left the car in Times Square. So you, you trace the car, and then you're able to trace the... They're able to find a whole bunch of information on They're able to trace the phone uh, that he had used. He had a... I believe he had a burner phone. He had a pay-as-you-go cell phone. Um, and then he got to the airport and almost got back to Pakistan. They had to catch him on the plane at the airport. He almost got out of the country. 
but he did leave clues. He left information that law enforcement could work with, including me. I remember being called in that weekend after the bomb almost went off. Um, he did not. He, he was not a skilled bomb maker. Otherwise, he would have had a high casualty count that day. Uh, but this time around with Austin, it doesn't look like police have have much to go on so far. Um, here's the Austin police chief on on where the investigation stands. There has already been a significant presence from our federal partners since these events began. And as we reported yesterday, we have over 500 agents and their teams working on Austin cases alone. And we have additional resources being brought in again by both of those agencies. And as has already been broadcast, there is a $100,000 reward out there for someone who can give us a tip leading to the identification of the suspect or suspects in this incident. So they're looking to, law enforcement looking to get lucky here. Someone will come forward and say, you know what, I've, I've got something for you. Or maybe it's someone who just wants the 100K who was trying to keep silent before, mind their own business, so to speak. And now they're going to step forward. You know, who knows? We'll have to see. You got 500 agents working on this case in the Austin area. Uh, four bombings, as I, as I mentioned. And the addition of a trigger device to this one means that this is now something that could have Uh, could have gone off and killed anyone, children, anybody. I mean, it doesn't seem like it is targeted. The first three bombings were package bombs that were opened by individuals. They were left on their, I believe, left on their porches. Uh, And they were left in what was a predominantly minority area of Austin. So there was also initially put out there by, I don't know if it was the media and law enforcement or just the media, but the notion this might have been a hate crime now it's looking uh, like there's a greater randomness to all of this. The most recent bombing, uh, I believe two people injured, neither of them killed. Uh, but the most recent bombing was in a uh, more well-off part of the city and was triggered by a tripwire. So that's just anybody in the area. People are asking the question about is this terrorism or not? That's a discussion that I've gotten involved in at the national media level, a whole bunch of cases in the past. There's just not enough to go on right now. We just don't know. Um, And anything put out there right now about motive feels like speculation. You know, this this could be uh, this could be domestic terrorism. Absolutely. It also just could be a completely sick and deranged individual who wants to send bombs or or plant bombs and, and kill people. Just because, you know, we, we don't know. So I, I don't have much on the analytic side to give you uh, on why I think this person may this person is, is doing this. As to how they find him, this is where you hope that all these different agents, you got ATF down there, FBI, Austin, uh, city police, I'm sure you got state police, I'm sure Texas Marshals are involved. I mean, everyone's FBI, every, everyone's in on this one, as they should be. Because um, this is now a, a city under siege, in a sense. You've got people that are concerned about, and and rightfully so, concerned about just walking around the streets, right? These are essentially IEDs going off in Austin. And they have no real leads that we know of, and there's no sense that they're going to be able to catch this person anytime imminently, uh, unless they get some sort of a break. Now we're hoping that maybe uh, they'll be able to reverse... Uh, kind of uh, the surveillance footage from different cameras, maybe street cameras or uh, 
in different buildings nearby. You know, this is where they try to piece together whatever they can to just get that one break in the case. Because right now it's it is bleak. It's terrible. I read the stories of a young man who was killed you know, opening this. Uh, he was with his mother. The mother was severely injured. They brought this package into their into their uh, kitchen. And just the, this is it's so the whole thing is so evil and so senseless. So I really hope that uh, they manage to track down whoever's responsible and hold them to account and prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. I'm assuming this was, to me, right on its face, this is a death penalty case, uh, just based on what's going on already. And we'll have to see if there's some kind of a manifesto, a possible political motivation behind this, you know, war against the government. I mentioned Timothy McVeigh before, or uh, someone who's, you know, who knows? Could, could be any idea, you know, could be any terrorist or extremist ideology. We just don't know right now. Uh, we don't have much to go on. So if we have anything that breaks during the show, I will bring it to you. We're watching the case very closely, and our thoughts and prayers are with those in the city of Austin tonight. We're, we're thinking about you all. So, um, you know, stay safe down there, and let's let law enforcement do their work and hope they come up with some solutions quickly. We'll hit a quick break. We'll be right back. Trump and trade. And, of course, China. China! Got Trump talking about what he is going to do with tariffs. But I've been trying to look at this from as many perspectives as we possibly can here in the Freedom Hub. We have somebody who is an actual expert on trade who will join us now. He wrote a piece. uh, It's up on the Hill. How much does trade impact Americans? Not all that much. We have Derek Scissors on the line. He is an international economist at the American Enterprise Institute. Derek, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So uh, I I really liked your piece because you're saying, look, the people that are saying that this is a huge deal and if Trump does this thing he says he's going to do, the economy is going to come tumbling down. It's a little bit of chicken little going on. Yeah, it's uh, the basic story here on trade is... If you have very strong trade policies for a long period of time, that can matter, even to a really big country like the United States. But our economy, if you use gross domestic products, is $18 trillion. Every steel and aluminum product we import, everyone, no exceptions, all countries, $48 billion. Um, you, You do the math, it's just not a big deal. It's hard for trade to matter to the U.S. Can NAFTA matter to the U.S. over time? Sure. Can really big sanctions against China matter? Sure. The steel tariffs are not going to matter. What do you say to people who say, oh, but Derek, if it, maybe it's only about $50 billion. You said $48 billion for steel and aluminum, but there'll be all of these uh, reprisals and retaliation. Well, I mean, the rest of the world's we have the biggest economy in the world, but the rest of the world's economy is bigger than ours. If we're importing $48 billion from everybody and everybody's economy put together is bigger than ours, why do they care so much about the $48 billion? There, there could be repri- retaliation, I agree, but the retaliation will probably be worth about $40 billion. Um, so I, I, this is not, I think the way to attack the, the steel and aluminum tariffs is what are we trying to accomplish? And, and that's where I would push the president and the administration, like, what are we trying to accomplish here? Tell me exactly where you're going with this. But the idea that what we did is really going to hurt us or them or both of us 
and then they're going to do this. They're going to have this huge retaliation. Why would they have huge retaliation against what really is a small trade step by the United States? They're going to talk a lot about it because they want to look like they're they're being tough for their own uh, people, just like President Trump does. But again, their retaliation is going to be small, just like our action was small. And in terms of what China is doing, that is uh, that that would go in the category of unfair. Just for everybody listening, what does China do from a trade perspective that gives them an advantage over rivals that would uh, ruffle some feathers in the Trans-Pacific Partnership side of the aisle, right? The people that believe that if we all just got together and did more trading, everything would be great. Well, they do two things, one of which the administration is looking into, and we may hear what they're going to do about it uh, as soon as this week. And the other one, um, which I'll talk about in a second, but the first one that the administration is looking into is they, they steal or, or try to push companies into transferring technology or intellectual property. And basically the problem there is American firms are the most innovative in the world, not in every field, but overall we have the most innovative companies, we have the most innovative workers, we have the most innovative people. Well, if we innovate and the Chinese say, hey, thanks for the innovation, we're just going to steal it, or we're going to push your company saying you can't do any business in China uh, unless you turn over this technology, um, they, we don't get the, the benefits from that that we should. Our, our, our companies can't sell as many goods because the Chinese are competing with them, which means fewer jobs for American workers. So that's what the administration is looking at right now. It's, it's China taking the thing that we do best and trying to you know, steal the advantages of it. Um, the other thing that they do is they heavily subsidize their, uh, their, some of their firms, state-owned enterprises in China. And those firms don't export because even heavily subsidized, they're not competitive. But it basically means the Chinese market is closed to a lot of American goods because Chinese state-owned enterprises never lose. You can't outcompete them. You can't drive them into bankruptcy because you have better products, you're a better company, you have better workers. It doesn't matter. They don't lose. So that's the block on the Chinese market, that they don't let their state-owned enterprises lose. And then if that weren't enough, they go out and they, they take American. American and other countries' innovation. Now, the issue of technology is actually something I'm going to address later from a national security perspective. But when the president, and everyone, we're speaking to Derek Scissors from the American Enterprise Institute, he's an international economist. When the president says that we're getting killed on trade, China's doing all this bad stuff on trade, uh, he's speaking in, in very general terms, but what is he really trying to get at? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. Uh, it, the, during the campaign and, and sometimes as president, the president, uh, President Trump has really emphasized cutting into the bilateral trade deficit. So if you, com- if, if you include goods and services, the U.S. has about a $340 billion bilateral trade deficit with China last year. And President Trump just, you know, that really bothers him. And he'd like that to come down to, you know, $100 billion. He knows it's not going to go away. But he wants an improvement. He wants it to stop rising and start dropping. Now, I think but does he have a point? Going. I don't mean to interrupt you, Derek, but that, sure, is that a problem? Because um, people tell us it's I, not a problem. I don't think that's the problem. I, this is the way I would put it. The U.S. and China have really big economies. You know, you put them together in terms of gross domestic product GDP, it's $30 trillion. If the Chinese were good trade partners, if you had asked me a question and you said, you know, what do the Chinese do that, that upsets people who, you know, have a very positive view of the world, um, like our TPP partners, and I said, I, I, I don't know, and none of my friends know, and we've been working at this for years, and they're great trade partners, I wouldn't care about the trade deficit. What bothers me is what they do. The trade deficit is an outcome. So, you know, $340 billion sounds like a lot of money, but if China was a great trade partner that was open to American products that didn't steal American technology, I would say, I, you know, that's just the way it is. The story I think the president is getting at 
is they have that trade surplus because they're not good trade partners. Um, and, and, you know, what I want is to change their practices. I think the president would just be happy if the trade deficit fell for, for you know, for whatever reason, the Chinese just buy a bunch of U.S. soybeans. Um, so there's a little bit of a split there. I don't think the trade deficit is a problem. I think what China does is the problem. I think the president really just wants the trade deficit to shrink. And on the issue of uh, steel specifically, are we going to be able to see some improvement in you know U.S. industry and steel output? I mean, but I would assume then, if it's only fifty billion dollars we're importing, there are limitations on how much of an impact this will have on the economy, uh, apart from the national security aspect of it. Right, and so yeah, I mean, if if you apply twenty five percent tariff to everyone, you didn't grant any exceptions, and you and you got all steel and, and so the aluminum tariffs only ten percent. You're not going to stop importing $48 billion, which was the total last year. It's going to drop. It's going to drop to like $35 billion because those products have gotten more expensive. So we're talking about $13 billion more production in the United States. That's not nothing. But for people who are familiar with this industry, uh, even steel is heavily automated. It's a lot of capital spending to set up a steel mill. There are not as many workers as there used to be. Will it create some jobs? Yeah. How many jobs will it create? I'm afraid not very many. It's also not going to cause the cost of your car or, or your plane flight or your house to go soaring through the roof. That's my point about you know both sides are exaggerating how important this is. But cutting steel imports by $10, $15 billion, it's, it's just not going to create very many jobs. And let me ask you, while we got you on the phone here, one more about uh, about NAFTA. Uh, you've said before that, uh, you've had it on my show, that NAFTA, it is time for it to be renegotiated. So people that kind of roll their eyes, look skyward and all that, when Trump says we got to renegotiate NAFTA, it, it does need some some updating. What would be the best way for Trump to go about that? Right. So it absolutely needs some updating. It's a 23-year-old agreement. It was path-breaking at the time. You know, whether you think it's terrible or great, people tend to agree that it was path-breaking. Um, it does need some updating. The world has changed a lot since then. You know, we didn't have digital trade then. We didn't have trade through the Internet. We didn't have people buying things online and anything like the quantities that we have now. So, I mean, there's another situation where the, I think the president is right that it needs updating. I think what the administration is negotiating with to try to modernize the agreement and to say to Mexico and Canada, look, the U.S. is very good at services. You, you need to allow us to be able to sell our stuff digitally and not have taxes or restrictions or play any games with that. Those are good things to try to do. The president also really wants our bilateral trade deficit with Mexico to fall. And that's going to be really hard because the Mexican economy is basically not growing. So if you're just trying to upgrade and improve NAFTA, you can do it. And if, you, and if the Mexicans or the Canadians don't go along, it's their fault. But if you're trying to get the trade deficit to fall, that's going to be a tough sell because we're growing faster than Mexico. It's going to be really hard for them to buy more products from the United States when they're not buying more of their own products. Derek Scissors of AEI, everybody. Go to AEI.org to read their latest research. Derek, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for your piece. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Team, we're going to roll into a quick break. Uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. We're going to have Jesse Kelly joining later this hour to talk about raising young men because he's got a couple of young men that he's raising. He's got, he's got kids. I don't. So he's an expert on that. I'm not. He'll be joining. We'll talk about that. Stay with me. He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. As a millennial, I've heard a lot of the stories out there from those of you who are uh, boomers, Gen Xers. Is Gen Y a thing, too? 
about how, you know, well, when I was going to college, I uh, I was a, a bar back and I, you know, worked as a golf a golf caddy over the summer. And, uh, you know, you have, you have all these stories about how you were saving money for college or, or raising money for your college tuition when you were in it. And they make great stories to tell your kids. And one of the get off my lawn things you often hear from the boomer generation is, oh, you know, kids these days. They're just they expect someone else to pay for it or it's all it's all taking out debt. And then they're hoping the debt will just be wiped away. I would note that that is a major, major platform for the Sandernista left wing of the Democrat Party going forward. You got a trillion dollar student loan bubble out there. People are just going to say that, yeah, just we should just have debt forgiveness of it. Just forgive the debt. Do they think about what that would mean? No, they don't. But. It's going to get bigger um, because there's no way people are going to be able to pay off a lot of those loans. Um, but there is a great piece in the New York Times, no, in the Wall Street Journal, not the New York Times. You can't work your way through college anymore. And it just talks about how different the situation is now when you're talking about a particularly a four year private college. But even a lot of these state schools, the difference between what it used to be to go to a place like Yale, for example, very fancy, very elite school versus what it would be to go to Yale today. And this is then filters down all the way across the spectrum. So the notion that you could wait tables, you know, uh, you could have some job as a lifeguard at the beach, save money and pay off a semester of college. That's gone. You would have to be making. Well, he gives you this gives you the numbers here and I'll walk you through some of the numbers. Here's what he writes. This is by Richard West, the Wall Street Journal. That's right, for all of you get-off-my-lawn types, you guys, when it, came, when it came to college tuition, I'm going to say it, you had it easy. You had it easy compared to what's going on today. It is out of control now. And I would also note that you're supposed to get an advanced degree now just to have one, even if you don't use it. And I know so many people that have JDs, you know, went to law school, and it's like, oh, what do you do? Oh, I work in marketing. What do you, why do you have a JD? Yeah, you know, it's, you know, got to be competitive, you know, three years of law school. Anyway. Here's what uh, Richard West writes. In 1956, as a freshman at Yale, 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 man, he's a Yaley. I waited tables in a student dorm for about $1 an hour, 10 hours a week. I received a full scholarship, but even if it had ended, I recall that Yale's all-in price, this is amazing, Yale's all-in price, including tuition, room and board, was $1,800 a year, and my work while in school during the term, 10 hours a week, would have covered a sixth of that. So you would, while you're in school, this is not even paying it off after you get out of school. While you were in school in 1956, you could pay off a chunk of your Yale tuition. And then when you graduate, you'd have even less. And as everyone knows, you got to pay interest on the debt and everything else on the loan. He goes on, today, tuition, room and board at Yale runs $66,900. Now, for a lot of people I know, they're going to say, Buck, $1,800 in 1956 was a lot more then than it is today. Uh, it wasn't $66,000. Might have been, I don't know, we could actually look at what the uh, what the inflation calculator would say for, I don't know, maybe, maybe 5, 10x, you know, maybe something like that. It was it wasn't almost seventy grand though. Eighteen hundred bucks in nineteen fifty six wasn't seventy thousand dollars. Okay, so that much I know. Mm-mm, no, false. 
And we're not talking about 1856. This is 1956. So he goes into some of the uh, the number crunching here. This is just before we all, you know, hear all the stories, you know, I had to, I had to trudge to my university classes in four feet of snow, and I was carrying on my back the lumber for my job as a campus lumberjack. You know, I was carrying around, painting off the hard way, splinters in my hands when I was doing multivariable calculus, you know. We hear all these stories, you know, about people... You know, I, I just finished at the sawmill at uh, 9 a.m., and I was on campus at 10 a.m., paying it off. Now, that's all great, but it doesn't really work that way anymore. Here's what he writes. Quote, today, tuition, room and board at Yale, run $66,900, working the same amount as I did, even at $12 an hour, an increase of roughly one-third after inflation, produces income of $3,600, or slightly more than 5% of the total. To earn enough to pay for one-sixth of a Yale education would require an hourly wage of more than $37. Yeah. Not a lot of college kids are getting $37 an hour for their job, uh, unless they're an SAT tutor, maybe. Um, And I don't know what that market's like these days either. But this is where we start to look at how higher education is just completely out of control in terms of costs right now. I also think the quality's gone down dramatically. You look at what was required curriculum at a lot of these schools back in the fifties and sixties. So for the get off my lawn types out there, you've got some, you got some stuff, you got some legs to stand on. Uh, but now you know you get everyone coming out of school with a women and gender studies degree, thirty, forty, fifty, sometimes a hundred thousand dollars in debt, and this has become the norm. This is now the expectation for a lot of. Well, this is the expectation, and, and society is, is pushing people into this. It's just assumed that you shouldn't do trade school. You know, it's just, and when I say assumed, a lot of you are like, Buck, I went to trade school. I didn't assume that. I'm talking about, you know, the, the general cultural thrust, right? The, uh, the media, the institutions around us. How do, here's a good example. How do high schools generally measure the success of their graduates? What percentage go to college? It's not what percentage get a, a, a good paying job right away and start saving for a down payment on a house and creating skills and financial security for themselves. That's not how they measure success. And, and maybe they should change that a little bit. You know, they should probably have a what. Yeah. OK. What level of people are uh, coming out here? What percentage of people are coming out and going to college? But it'll, it would also be worthwhile to have what percentage of students leave this high school and have gainful employment within the first you know 12 months of graduating if that's what they choose to do we really need to change this if if i knew now uh or if i knew then what i know now about what it would mean to go away for four years and be told to just study and better myself and read oh my gosh and i think even spending a year or two working or serving your country The military is an obvious choice, but there are other capacities in which I think service would even be uh, very illuminating. This needs to be a much bigger national conversation, along with school choice. uh, There are so many places here where conservatives are actually on, you know, conservatives are on the side of innovation and improvement. It is the liberals who are part of the sclerotic, stubborn bureaucracy that refuses to change, that excuses failure in fact always finds a way 
to transfer the responsibility to failure onto someone else's shoulders and is just unwilling to look at what's really happening in education in this country. You know, despite all the spending, you know, they're so quick to make fun of Betsy DeVos, who's at least trying to do something to help kids in particularly inner city schools in, in minority uh, minority areas with low average incomes. You know, she's trying to help those students and people want to mock her. I know she was mocked on SNL over the weekend. But when I look at this now and I see top to bottom, education has become too expensive. It is not better. It is focusing on less applicable skills, and it's inexcusable because technology and the availability of information has never been better than it is right now. So we've just got to catch up with some of the ideas and policies and use the technologies we have so that everybody's finding their best path, whatever that may be. i got a roll no break, team. I'll be back. Welcome back, everyone. We are going to switch gears here for a moment and uh, get into some some man time. Uh, we've got Jesse Kelly with us. He is a former Marine. He is also a former congressional candidate. He writes. He does TV appearances. He's all around pundit and uh, opinionated fellow. He's got a great piece up on the Federalist. Why a good father prepares his sons for war. And we have Jesse now to tell us. Why that is. Jesse, thank you so much for joining. Good to talk to you again, brother. Are you down in Texas? Where are you right now coming to us from? I'm down in Texas. I'm down in Houston. So I hope you Northeast people are freezing to death up there because it's 80 degrees down here in Balmy. Oh, my gosh. I am refusing to believe that we are about to get hit almost, I think, to the day, the first day of spring with a nor'easter. That just seems like it's too cruel. But enjoy <laughs> enjoy your, your warmth down in Texas while we freeze up you here. Know? So uh, Jesse, tell me about why a good a good son prepare or sorry a good father prepares his son for war. Because that's why that's part of the reason why men were created on this earth. Men are the protectors of society, not of just this society, of any society. And power never disappears; it just changes hands. So if we don't have strong men, then you get bullies and jerks who pick on the weak. And that's why you're seeing a lot more of that in this society today because we're raising a, raising a coddled generation of boys, and we've told them they need to be sensitive and all these other things instead of telling them, you need to be a man, you need to protect those weaker than you. And Jesse, you mentioned in your piece uh, a journalist by the name of Will Leitch, I believe, who wrote about his experience shooting a 20-gauge, not even a 12-gauge, a 20-gauge shotgun. Can you just give us a little bit of the backstory there? Because this is quite, quite a tale. Somebody sent me the tale. Apparently this Will has uh, a series. I mean, he has an actual series about raising boys. Because he's got a couple sons, and he tells a story about how horrible guns are and how scared he was, I guess, when he was a boy, just a young boy, his dad just hands him a 20-gauge with no instructions, no help, no safety classes. The kid holds it up away from his body, shoots off around into a field. The gun goes flying. The kid's scared to death. The dad's scared to death. It was the most embarrassing thing I have ever read in my life as far as a fatherhood thing. That's not Will's problem. That's Will's father's problem. Every man should teach his son how to handle a weapon comfortably. You don't have to raise a Navy SEAL. Teach your son how to handle himself with a weapon, handle it safely, make sure he respects it, 
make sure he knows how deadly it is, and then teach him to be fast and deadly with it because he may have to be one day. I also had to note that in in this piece, and by the way, so Jesse, you now realize that it, it is incumbent upon you to write a how to how to raise a son properly series, right? Because we've got the progressive left wing version from this fellow, Mister Leitch, but now we need the Jesse Kelly version in in total. I can't. I mean, this piece is a great start, but so, so I'm gonna I'm just gonna put some more work on your plate, Jesse, along with the podcast that we're gonna keep here in the Freedom Hut, demanding you launch in the next six months. But tell me, tell me more about Will Leitch and this notion that he's upset that his children are sick or that his, his boys specifically, because they're white males, uh, are succeeding and how that's not good. He gets a call into his teacher, to his son's teacher, uh, and his wife go in and sit down in front of his son's teacher and finds out that his kid is doing great in school, that his kid is brilliant and personable and his grades are great. And the teacher specifically said his son was a golden child. And was Will happy? Yes. But also, and he writes this down in the piece, a part of him was really concerned. Does his son only have that success at the expense of the others? Haven't, and I quote this, haven't white men already succeeded enough? I mean, I cannot imagine how twisted up and tormented you have to be as a father to get a glowing report about your son and be uneasy about it. That is a mixed-up person inside, and he's going to mix up his boys if he passes that down to him. We're speaking to Jesse Kelly. He's a former Marine, and uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Jesse Kelly DC. Uh, Jesse, I, I really liked the, the part of your article in The Federalist here where you went into, it's not just about don't allow yourself to be bullied. It's also teaching your kids, don't allow anyone to bully somebody else. That, that bullying, you know, there's all these national anti-bullying campaigns, and that's all fine and good. I think sometimes, tonally, they're a little off as to how to prevent bullying, but bullying is very bad. But the real way to get it to stop is, one, as you said, as a father, tell your kids, I better never hear about you bullying somebody else who's weaker than you, because I will rain down the fury. Uh, and two... If you see if you see anyone else who is being bullied, you as an honorable young man, it is incumbent upon you to step in and stop that bullying. It is everything. The the people preying on the weak are the worst people in the world. And part of every man's duty is to stop that. Put a stop to that. And you're right, my sons have been told several times, you will never bully somebody or you will not enjoy it, but you will stop a bully. And if you get in trouble in school or you get sent home, you get suspended for a couple of days, guess what? That's going to be an enjoyable couple, enjoyable couple of days for you because you're going to be in no trouble in my household. A few months ago, my nine-year-old stopped the bully in school, was taking on another small kid. As you can imagine, I'm huge and my son is huge, and he put a stop to it. I've never been so proud of my daggone life. And that extends into adulthood, too. That's not just the schoolyard campaign. The reason you see so much of this disgusting harassment in Hollywood is because there were men, no men to stand there, no men to step in and tell Harvey Weinstein to sit down or he's going to get punched in his face because all the anti-bullying programs in the world are fine. That's good. But there is still no substitute for balling up your fist and smashing it into somebody's nose. Jesse, what are the two or three most important things that you think that right now every uh, young man in America should hear from either you know, father older brother, guardian, whomever it is that is the, the, the prominent male figure in his life? What, what are the, the two or three things you think everyone 
should be told now, given the direction of the culture, which is obviously not really handling this the way that it should? No whining. Life is unfair, and it is your duty to protect those who are weaker than you. All right. I like it. We could put that on a we could just put that on a T-shirt, actually. Jesse Kelly was I'm, I'm with <laughs> it, my friend. It. Jesse, your piece on the Federalist is great. Everybody should check it out. Um, it is all about how to uh, raise a son who is, quote, prepared for war, not just in the military sense, but in the being a good person who defends other sense. Uh, Jesse, anywhere you want to direct the folks listening to find your stuff or more what you're up to? Come, come find everything I do on Twitter, at Jesse Kelly DC. Every article I do, everything I talk about, every radio hit, everything I do is all on there, at Jesse Kelly DC. And I also have a Facebook page, Jesse Kelly. If you search, it should pop right up. All right, fantastic. Jesse, thank you so much, sir, for your service, for your time, and for the drinks you're going to buy me the next time you're in New York City. I appreciate it. <laughs> I got you, brother. I'll be there. Soon. All right. Talk to you soon, Jesse. Thanks, man. All right, team, we are going to roll into a break here for the third hour of the Buck Sexton Show, which is going to talk a bit about China and how they're stealing our technology. You'll want to hear it. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the buck brief. How China pushes the limits on military technology transfer is the title of the article in the Wall Street Journal. It should be how China is stealing us blind when it comes to our most critical national security technology, our most critical commercial proprietary technology, and how this is not only being done on a scale that would infuriate most Americans if they actually knew what the heck was going on, but it's largely being done out in the open. Let me explain. This was a piece by a member of Congress, Bob Pittenger, where he's talking about some of these joint projects that are out there. I mentioned this to you last week, how uh, Broadcom was not allowed to take over Qualcomm. These are very high-tech chip manufacturers and telecommunication companies because President Trump was just like, nope, not going to happen. There are important national security implications for this technology. We can't let China be in control of one of our most important uh, one of our most important companies in that area. Technically, the company would have been owned in Singapore, would have been acquired by a Singapore-based company, but Singapore has deep ties to China. The Chinese have a lot of influence to bring to bear in Singapore. And if they had slowed things down or gone in another direction, the Chinese could indirectly get a major advantage in the race for 5G telecommunication technology. This is important stuff, folks. And we think about it in the day to day as, well, this would mean you could download an entire high definition movie in a second instead of 20 minutes on your Wi-Fi. Think about what that also means, though, for the transfer of military technology and for just communication across the board. This is critical stuff. 
And yet this somehow isn't a major story. We also don't hear much about what the Chinese are really up to in the open. Recently, we've gotten a better sense of what their hacking uh, efforts have led to. We're We're starting to learn more from our own government about just how intrusive Chinese hacking efforts have been into our systems. But what about the things that are happening out in the open? This is from this Wall Street Journal piece. I wanted to share some of it with you and then tell you that it's even worse than Congressman Pittenger is saying here. But here's how he starts the piece. Quote, for years, the Chinese government has evaded America's technology transfer safeguards and been allowed to vacuum up military applicable technologies from U.S. companies. The Chinese have perfected the weaponization of investment as a legal means to achieve this massive transfer of dual use technology, bolstering China's military modernization. If the U.S. loses its military technology advantage over China and other adversaries, it will one day cost American lives. And he cites specifically the effort by Broadcom, Singapore-based company, to take over Qualcomm, which Trump shot down. But when you look at what has already happened, uh, what is already going on here, you see that there are U.S. companies that are lobbying against any restrictions on their very cozy relationships with Chinese-based companies because they want access to the markets. This is about the bottom line for those companies. But in order to get access to the markets, guess what? The Chinese Communist Party, which runs the economy as well as the government, will insist on U.S. companies sharing some very sensitive dual-use technology. This has happened in many cases. As cited in this uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal, here are just a few of them. Quote, in 2011, General Electric formed a joint venture with Aviation Industry Corporation of China, one of China's premier state-owned enterprises and the primary supplier of aircraft for China's military, sharing cutting-edge avionics technology. AVIC now has an enhanced capability to produce high-performance aircraft cockpit controls and displays, as well as communications and navigation systems, which it can adapt for Chinese warplanes. So thanks to GE's venture in China, Chinese warfighters, specifically in this case aviators, might have an advantage in the future. This is very serious stuff. And I think part of the problem here is that the left and academia in this country do not want us to know. They do not want you to be familiar with the full extent of the Soviet penetration of sensitive U.S. government agencies. There basically was a Soviet agent in every single major U.S. government agency uh, at the start of the Cold War and all the way up to those with direct access to the president. The Soviet theft of nuclear technology because of the Rosenbergs is somewhat well-known, but how many Americans know that the penetrations of U.S. avionics technology, for example, led to us to miscalculate what kind of advantage we would have in the air during the Korean War? We figured that our first generation of jets never mind even some of our propeller planes, would dominate the skies 
in our fight with North Korea. But guess what? The MiG fighters they came up against were flying circles around the stuff we put up in the air because the Soviets had stolen our best stuff and used it for their own purposes. They actually had an advantage, and therefore Soviet planes that we went up against in the Korean War had an advantage. This is how the great game of nation-states and civilizations has played out for millennia. And we in this country, I think, are blithely... uh, unbothered by what's going on here. Well, it's time for all of us to wake up on this one. This is really important. I've got more for you from this Wall Street Journal piece. Quote, in 2016, GE formed a joint venture with another Chinese company handing over advanced battery technology that could have battlefield applications such as powering heavy ground vehicles. The same year, General Electric formed a partnership with Chinese government-affiliated Huawei to develop cloud-based industrial applications for the Internet of Things. This arrangement could result in long-term cyber vulnerabilities for the U.S., in part because, like so many so-called private companies in China, Huawei is beholden to the Chinese Communist Party and is functionally an arm of the Chinese government, just like I said. Likewise, IBM has systematically transferred high-end computing technology to China, By 2016, according to a working group of experts from the National Security Agency and Energy Department, China had attained a near-peer status with the U.S. in high-performance computing. Without a doubt, IBM's technology transfers have contributed to China's enhanced high-performance computing capabilities. This will lead to a severe compromise of our national security as we have a loss of leadership in high-performance computing, end quote. I mean, and there's even more. In 2017, IBM formed a joint venture with a Chinese company, Inspur, handing over the capability to manufacture its own computer servers. That same year, IBM established a partnership with the state-owned China Telecom, agreeing to hand over cloud computing technology. Folks, we have U.S.-based companies that are handing over the keys to the store. And yeah, they're doing it because they want access to the Chinese markets. They're just looking at their bottom line. But there are clear dual-use applications here. And this is the kind of technology that if we actually go to war with China in the future, could be a major problem for us. Think about a world in which China actually has the technological advantage over us militarily. What if they have the best, the fastest, the smartest in planes, submarines, technology of all kinds that's applicable on the battlefield? That's what we are heading toward right now if we don't get a handle on this. There's only so much our R&D can do to keep us ahead of China if China can keep stealing our research and development. And yet everyone's kind of asleep on this one for the most part. We all just want cheap flat screen televisions and all kinds of junk sent over in huge quantities for us to purchase at the cheapest possible price. And companies like General Electric and IBM are just happy to pad their bottom line. They don't see or don't care to see the national security implications of this. But when we faced off against our most recent near peer global competitor, the Soviet Union, It was our technological advantage that was among the most important things we had to keep them in check. 
eventually our economy ran them into the ground, but they were much closer to us militarily than they should have been at numerous points in the Cold War because of all the stuff the Soviets stole. The Chinese have the second biggest economy in the world, and it's growing very rapidly. They have embraced a market mentality for the purposes of wealth creation and production. It's just state-controlled. But their economy is not going to crater and collapse into nothing. They are looking to supplant us as the most powerful nation on Earth, and they're stealing some of our most valuable intellectual property in that pursuit. And not only that, we have U.S. companies that are handing it over to them. The Trump administration needs to take action here. I'll follow up more on there's a bill making its way through Congress that we'll discuss. In fact, I'll try to see if we can get one of the co-authors, maybe even the author of this piece in The Wall Street Journal to come on and talk. I've got more team. Stay with me. It was only a matter of time before it was going to happen, and now it has. The first person on record has been killed by a self-driving or autonomous vehicle. This happened in Arizona, and it is the first time. It will not be the last time, but it does have some implications, I think, for where all this is heading, where all this self-driving phenomenon is going to go. Uh, and first of all, it's just it's tragic. Can you imagine? I mean, there was somebody behind the wheel of this Uber self-driving car in Arizona, but they put it on autopilot, essentially, and it struck a woman in a crosswalk. Now, here's what uh, I've known all along about this. People say that there are roughly, what, a, oh, gosh, I don't even know, 30,000, I think, auto fatalities a year, something like that. Something in that neighborhood. Maybe it's less now. I think that might have been the all-time high. Um, but the thing about those fatalities uh, is that they are spread out among, oh, wow, 40,000 40, people died in 2016 in motor vehicle accidents. I thought it was 30,000, so it's even more than I thought. But a vast majority, people don't often talk about this, a vast majority of uh, vehicular fatalities involve driver error, which is not surprising. Um, in in many cases, I should actually check and see what the stats are. I think it's just people that make a mistake much more so than it is people who are impaired or who are doing anything uh, illegal necessarily during it. You know, people forget to look one way and, you know, they go through the light or uh, things like that are, are obviously a large portion. I don't know what the what the percentages are, but a large portion of auto fatalities. But anytime a person dies in a car crash, and it's one thing that here in New York City growing up was uh, was different than it was in other places around the country. I remember when I got to college, I noticed how friends of mine, uh, all of my friends, pretty much to a person had at least one of their friends died in a car accident in high school. I mean, a high school aged person that they knew had died in a car accident. Because I'm from New York City, none of us even were driving, really. Uh, maybe some of us. I, I drove senior year of high school, but that just wasn't a problem for uh, for us to be worried about. We had, we had other things to worry about. Uh, but anyway, the overwhelming number of, of cases of uh, driver of fatalities is driver error. But in all those 40,000 or so deaths, the liability for it is spread around uh, 
to the individuals involved in the crash, not the car company. Right, so if you're in a, uh, a Ford Fiesta and you crash into somebody who's in a Prius and there's a, a fatality in that other car, that's something that you and your insurance companies are dealing with. But it's not something that falls squarely on the shoulders of the manufacturer. I don't know how they're going to handle this from an insurance standpoint. Uh, I'm sure there probably are ways, which is why they're pursuing this. But if any time there's a autonomous vehicular accident that uh, ends in a fatality, it ends up being the company's fault. The company can be sued. I don't see how you have a situation that doesn't essentially turn into the equivalent of one long running class action lawsuit against Uber or against whichever company wins this race for autonomous driving dominance. And I also know that there are a lot of people that are going to that are going to push back against having all of the different uh, vehicles out there that are machine driven, that are run by algorithms, that are run by artificial intelligence. People like to drive. Everyone in my family, uh, all the males in my family, I should say, really like driving uh, a lot. I do not. Uh, I'm fine with it, but I don't enjoy it. Like whenever someone says, hey, I'll drive you. I'm always like, yeah, that sounds good. Go ahead. You know, I'm not somebody who fights for the steering wheel. I just don't really care. Uh, I'm also someone who now has avoided. I haven't rented a car in in years because I would just prefer to Uber wherever I am. I have no interest. I, I've had some of the most negative consumer experiences of my life have involved car companies. I hate the whole thing. I hate the hard sell for the bogus additional insurance. I, all the little extras they try to throw on. You know, here's your little Garmin GPS, and if you lose it, it's like $1,000 or something. I mean, the whole thing, right? I, I hate all that stuff. So I'm a big Uber proponent. I just don't know how Google, Uber, this is a, a massive technology race that's going on right now. I don't know how they deal with the issue of the liability of if you are relying on computers to do this, you know, if you're relying on computers to be driving vehicles, unless you can dramatically drop down the number, which is part of the argument. I mean, there's a lot of interesting philosophical components here, but unless you dramatically drive down the number of overall fatalities, it seems to me that you have a big problem of how do we pay uh, for all of the liability that we have as a result of this, you know, computers are going to fail. And then there's just another, and this is not a, a technology based argument. Um, and we're, we're going to be uh, switching here into a discussion of a movie that I saw over the weekend in a few minutes, the shape of water. It was terrible, but <laughs> I'll give you more than that. But uh, I get a little nervous, even with things like elevators having been stuck in my fair share of elevators. And I just hate that sense of loss of control. Even if someone shows me the statistics about driving a car or someone else driving me in a car, that it's much less safe than what the autonomous vehicles will be able to, to accomplish in, in a few short years. I think there's a part of all of us that the, there's a part of us as human beings that just want to be able to have some say, some control over uh, our, well, whether we live or die in this case. And even if the technology is better, it's going to take a while for us to switch onto that. Anyway, autonomous vehicles, a subject we'll get into more going forward, but first fatality, and uh, it's going to slow this whole process down a bit. And uh, very sad. Uh, we're going to run to a quick break, team. We'll be right back.
He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human, stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. When he looks at me, he does not know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. That was from the trailer for The Shape of Water, which won the Oscar for Best Picture. I felt like I was obligated on Friday to watch this movie. Plus, Miss Molly wanted to check it out, and I said, okay, fine. And I remember thinking to myself, how bad could it really be? It won the Best Picture for the entire year. Oh, boy. I was wrong. It was even worse than I expected. The Shape of Water is about a woman who has a sexual relationship with an aquarium pet. I'm not even going to get too far into a criticism of the movie being kind of slow, the dialogue being lackluster, and all the rest of it, the whole thing being trite. I'm actually more annoyed about the messaging in this film and also the completely predictable lens that it looks at this uh, situation that is created, uh, this, this fantasy. But on the, the biggest charge, what I just said, that this is about a woman who has a romantic uh, relationship, ha- has a love affair with an aquarium pet, for those who would say, oh, Buck, that's not fair, I say, at what point does it become clear in this movie which is about essentially the, the creature from the, the Blue Lagoon or whatever, or the Deep Lagoon, whatever that monster creature is, gets captured by some government scientists, and then they experiment on it, and this woman is cleaning up the room where they keep the monster, not exactly the tightest security in the world, and then she decides that she really likes the sea monster, and they start getting kind of playful. Then she brings it home, plops it in her bathtub, and proceeds to get amorous, I will say. And by the way, you see a good bit of that in this movie that won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Now, I've seen a couple of different methods of trying to explain this away. I think it is bizarro on many levels, and and I think it is quite weird. Um, I'm not okay with the whole thing. But people say, Bach, look at other fairy tales. Even the great fairy tales we were told as children, right? The princess who kisses the frog. Yeah, but the frog turns into a human being. That's the whole point. It's actually supposed to be a human. People say, oh, Bach, what about Beauty and the Beast? You know, it's like she's with some kind of a a, a large wolf-like creature. It's actually a human who has a spell on him. All right, that's different. This sea monster that the woman in the, sh- the shape of water falls in love with at no point becomes a human being, is actually a human being, 
is even partially a human being, it's a fish from what we can tell. And then I know the response would be, well, Bach, but it does sign language and it understands her, the protagonist, so well. And to that, I would say chimpanzees can do sign language. In fact, can do it quite well. And yes, dogs can understand emotion quite well. And while you know I'm quite fond of dogs, they are not human beings. And I think that the messaging in this movie is lame as well as a bit creepy. Never mind the fact that who who's the bad guy? Oh, of course, a they might as well have had him. He's this white, square-jawed government guy. He might as well have had a big MAGA hat on for the entirety of the movie, even though it takes place, I guess, in the late 50s. Uh, but he's all about, you know, the, the government and God and America. And, and he's the worst. He is an unfeeling, sadistic, terrible piece of trash. And everyone else in the movie that you might identify as being somewhat of a liberal, even the communist traitor, the guy who's a double agent for the the Soviets, right? He betrays his American colleagues. He's pretending to be someone he's not. Uh, even he has uh, some salvation in the movie because, he, well, I don't want to give it all away in case you want to watch it. But everyone has redeeming characteristics and qualities except for the white male Christian government, you know, FBI guy, basically. This is what I always have to laugh about. The media hates white males in the FBI by and large. You know, they really are against them for a whole bunch of reasons, except for any white males of the FBI that are useful in bashing Trump right? or, or who are trying to take the Trump presidency down. Uh, but, but The Shape of Water is just, it was a really bad movie. I mean, they should rename it The Shape of Goose Turd because that's what it was. That it won Best Picture is just more evidence of what I've been saying for some time, which is that the movie industry is in a really weak spot these days. TV is doing well overall, and I think it's uh, going to continue on this path. But The, the Shape of Water, it's just hollow the whole thing it is unredeeming in in every way uh and i just couldn't believe it that, that this is what, what this is not just a movie that i'm trashing folks this is supposed to be the collective wisdom of hollywood as what is the best movie of 2017 like i said big goose turd we'll be right back I like to think of myself as an innovator team. There are times when I have to stop and give myself a little bit of credit for being a trendsetter or perhaps a pioneer of style, at least when it comes to food and eating of meat. So I realized this because I, I made a ribeye for Ms. Molly and I on Friday, and I will tell you that it was seared perfectly and it was amazing. The $25 cast iron pan that I got myself was one of the better investments I can remember uh, making in recent years. 
But the next day, I thought to myself, you know, what is one to do with leftover ribeye? Oh, that's right. I'm going to make steak and eggs. That was also amazing, by the way. But then I thought to myself, what am I going to do with some of that delicious thick-cut bacon that I have in my fridge that I specifically got so that I could cook it to absolute perfection on Saturday and have a hashtag buck brunch? Why is it just steak and eggs, my friends, when it could be steak and eggs and bacon? Ah, indeed. So... I went with all three, the trifecta, steak, eggs, and bacon for brunch on Saturday. And this is what everyone should do going forward. There's no need to cut out the bacon just because you're having the steak. Maybe just limit yourself to a pound or so. And with that, I would like to get into some roll call. Team Buck. Time for roll call. And remember, if you want to be a part of roll call, you can send us a message on Facebook at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or official team Buck at gmail.com. If you'd like to send an email, we are also thinking about setting up a special voicemail that we would be able to have recording. when We're not on air and then those of you who have a voice message you'd like to leave so that the rest of the team can hear it, we could do that. So if you couldn't listen live, for example, if you happen to be one of our uh, wonderful podcast listeners, well, then we very much could put your audio on air when we do our next live show. First up on roll call is Roger. He writes, Buck, uh, just heard the podcast uh, from the Friday show about Bob Dylan and gurgling with Gergen. It made me laugh out loud. No easy task. Shields high. Thank you very much, Roger. Gurgling with Gergen and Bob Dylan also make me laugh. Monica, next up here, she writes, uh, this is the husband of Monica, and I ate these in Belfast. You asked, was there Irish ethnic food? Here it is, shepherd's pie. Okay, that's I'll, I'll take it. Not exactly something that's going to get me uh, too excited in the world of culinary excellence, but shepherd's pie is indeed, is it Irish, though, or is it English? Uh-oh, I don't want to get in the middle of that one. Let's get to Erica, and she writes, I re-listened to Thursday's program to get the name of the progressive hostility study since none of my Google searches found it. I tried again to conduct the exact title and nothing. Tried Duck, Duck, Go, and voila, there was the study. Well, Erica, I don't know about this Duck, Duck, Go, but maybe it's uh, better for some things than Google. I'll have to check it out. But the piece that I mentioned was on Quillette.com, and it was, or I, I went into some depth about it and just mention it, and it was the psychology of progressive hostility. Uh, next up here, Joey Annette. Wow, Buck, you were right. Sessions did fire McCabe. Jeff is a little late to the party, but he finally showed up with a haymaker. Now he'll just unrecuse himself and fire Mueller and stop this stupid waste of taxpayer money masquerading as an investigation. Shields high and keep up the good work. 
Well, uh, Joey and Annette, I will say that I not only called the firing on radio, I also went out there on outnumbered on Fox News on Friday and said, hey, guess what? There's going to be a firing of McCabe. And uh, I was correct. So thank you for noting that I was, in fact, correct. Uh, Next up here. uh, Hold on one second. Is Philip. And he writes... Hey, man, I'm sure you've probably been told already, but producer Mike was incorrect about the population of Russia. Yes, Philip, I was, in fact, basically correct. I said 120 million. The population of Russia is actually 140 million. Producer Mike on Friday told me it was 70 million based on a quick Google search. Do not worry. We will shortly assign him a code red. Once again, this goes to my theory that even when I think I might be wrong, I'm usually right. Uh, Let's see. Dale, he writes, really enjoyed your sidebar the other evening about Myst, a game series near and dear to my heart. So, Buck, which brother did you pick at the end of the original game? Dale, I cannot tell a lie. I didn't get that far in Myst because I was really young when I was playing it and some of those puzzles may have stumped me. Uh, but Mist was, I remember going into computer stores in the early days of home PCs, or early days of PCs, home PC would be repetitive, and there were Mist, there were uh, copies of Mist everywhere. I also remember really not liking Mac computers for a while because all of the video games were for PC, Windows, and if you wanted good games, Mac was not the choice for you. And then later on, people pretty much stopped using their computers for games. I feel like in general, it all went to PlayStations and these other consoles with the big flat screen TVs. But I did not get very far in Myst. I I must be honest with you. Now we've got uh, Pablo who writes, listening to your show recently, and you were talking about visiting Vietnam. We're heading there a week from Monday and are super pumped. We're doing Hanoi for a few days in the Cinnamon Cathedral uh, Hotel and then on to Halong Bay for a few nights. We're disappointed to miss uh, some of the stuff, but pumped nonetheless. Uh, Pablo, uh, I think you're going to have a great time. I love the food. I I just think it's a really interesting place and very, very different from uh, other cultures and other countries around the world. But have a great time and let us know what you think. And for those of you who asked what cuisine i'd recommend to start with i mentioned pho which is the most famous which you usually spelled a p-h-o which is sliced beef in a kind of soup slash noodle stew uh, but the other thing that i really love is a rice pancake called a banso so if you can get that i would say that's a very good place to start and bun cha which is a noodle dish is also really excellent by the way one of the reasons i like this food so much vietnamese food is that it doesn't use that much soy sauce. So as a celiac, I can eat most things on the menu. It uses mostly rice instead of flour noodles. So that's just for full disclosure. It's one of the only cuisines that is a, an ethnic cuisine that is really easy for people who are gluten intolerant to enjoy. William is up next here. He writes, quit crying about being old. I started Taekwondo at 44 after 20 years of army service and over a thousand days in Iraq and five kids, 
The five kids are much more challenging than convoy security. <laughs> William, you're right, man. I, uh, I, I shouldn't be given any, I shouldn't be complaining at all. I don't know how all you folks out there who are parents, I don't know how you do it. Uh, Kimberly is uh, next up here. She writes, Buck, I love your show. OSS Team Buck, North Carolina. Well, thank you very much, Kimberly. I appreciate it. Next one here in roll call is Christy. She writes, I think there is at least one movie in which Colin Farrell does not suck. He plays a hitman alongside a fellow brilliant actor in, uh, in, in Bruges. Interesting film and beautiful scenery. Hope you all have a wonderful weekend and happy St. Patrick's Day. And yes, you're allowed to say y'all. We don't mind. Christy, OSS member. Well, thank you so much, Christy. Hope y'all have a great St. Patrick's too down in uh, where, where, where you say OSS member from where? I'm not clear. She was from the South. That much, we, that much we know, Christy. I haven't seen In Bruges, but I have heard good things. So maybe I'll add that to my now very rapidly expanding list of shows that I must uh, check out. So um, with that team, I am going to close up shop here in the Freedom Hut for the day. Thank you always for being with me. Please uh, spread the word about what we do here and see you tomorrow. Shield tie.